you are being interviewed. I'm a special guest. Should I, should I turn the, I should maybe turn the, the light on right. you, like the interrogation light? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Middle-ish, the podcast about moderation in all things. I am Erin Green. And I am Michael Gray. And How's hello. It? Hello. Hello. <laughs> Happy day. I know. Day. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. So I want to tell you about um, this really interesting day I had yesterday. Ooh. All right. I like yeah. interesting days. Um, so it started Monday. I had gone out back and we don't spend a lot of time out in the back of our house. We actually sit out front on our front patio quite often, but we're not out out back very often. So I'm back there and kind of cleaning up, you know, the patio and and I look up and there's these two little, they look like young squirrels Mm -hmm. staring at me from the rain gutter. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of like this, it's a part on the house where like the, there's a higher point of the roof that overlaps a lower point of the roof. And so there's mm-hmm. a little gap and they're just looking at me, checking things out. And then they dart away. And I'm like, mm, they look kind of young, hmm. like babies, except babies that are old enough, obviously to peek their heads out and, you know, right. maybe leave the nest. So fast forward to that evening and I'm hearing this like scratching around mm. kind of noise, some noise. And I thought it was like the wind maybe blowing the screen door or something. And so I kind of walk and I'm in the kitchen and I'm walking toward a place in the house where that roof overlaps, like that very same spot where I saw the little squirrels checking mm-hmm. me out earlier in the day. And I'm like, I bet they have a nest up there. And I'm listening. And sure enough, you can just hear the scratching around. There's a critter up there in the mm-hmm. ceiling somewhere. So Matt gets home and I'm like, will you just listen to this and see what you think? And he listens and then he goes around back and he looks in that little gap and he can see like a little hole in there where obviously it would be a wonderful inviting place for a squirrel to go, you know, have some babies and raise their babies. So, um, I grew up on a farm where mice are incredibly destructive when they nest into things, right? Sure. Like they eat through wires, they chew through metal and they mm-hmm. just pee and poop everywhere. And they're, and they breed so quickly. So I'm having visions of these squirrels, like destroying the, you know, <laughs> everything up in the roof <laughs> of this house. And this isn't even our house we rent. And so I call the property manager and, you know, talk to her and tell her, you know, this is what we're seeing. How do you want to handle it? And meanwhile, you know, I'm, I'm talking with our friend, Karen, who listens to the podcast and she just, you know, volunteers with wildlife and loves critters. And I'm kind of like, okay, you're the squirrel lady. Like, why don't you come and take these off my hands? (laughs) She lives in California, so she can't, but to make a long story short, we found this wonderful organization here in Boise called animals in distress. Hmm. And current one thing Karen was like, please handle this humanely. Like, please take care of them. You know, don't like, yeah. And don't call an exterminator. And so these people came to my house and these, this group of locals, just, they know how to take care of critters and they rescue Mm. them. And sometimes they keep them as pets. I didn't know you could keep a squirrel as a pet, but you have to raise it from a baby. So it's not wild crazy, but they can turn into pets. They like, to chew. <laughs> they like to chew everything, but I guess they're really pretty clean. Like they don't, it's not like they just poop all over the place. Hmm. Um, and they're not destructive in the sense that mice are, they just, they like to chew and explore things with their mouths. And so you, everything in your house will be chewed. If you don't mind that, mm-hmm. you know, some people really don't. Um, but it was just a really enlightening experience because I was kind of thinking like, we have to get rid of these squirrels. Like they're Mm going to destroy the house. And this is a big deal. And as these women came over and were kind of telling me about all of their knowledge on squirrels and, and just, you know, little wild critters in general and their experience with them, I started realizing like, this isn't, you know, we don't have to move them. So I guess they'll nest and have their babies 
and then they'll leave the nest and they're just gone. And hmm. you can patch up that hole and it's done. Really? So if we just wait, yeah, if we just wait a few weeks until they're old enough and the babies leave the nest for good and mama leaves, we just patch up that hole and we're, we're done. So they don't live there? No. Where do they live? They leave. They, I don't know. They live in trees or someone what? else's attic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> No, as long <laughs> like as they leave mine. Somewhere else, I don't <laughs> care. Not here. It's all that matters. I know. So do they make nests specifically to have babies just for that I purpose? I think so. I oh, think they're so. They're like, I'm not we, doing this in my own home. Yeah, geez. <laughs> I need somewhere warm. And right? this this house would be perfect for that. And I'm not cleaning um, up the mess afterwards. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we're just going to leave. We're just going to have the babies, have the nest, and someone else can clean up after me and you know take care of this. So. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And it actually made me feel a lot better that we didn't have to, you know, yeah. worry about trapping these squirrels and then separating mom and babies and what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so one of the um, gals came back last night with a laparoscopic camera. So she could take this camera and just put it around the corner of the hole and kind of look around in there. And you could see the nest, like you could see all the leaves and debris and different things that they had nested, but there were no critters. And so obviously whatever babies were in there are leaving the nest and they're, but I just heard them like 10 oh, yeah. minutes ago. So they're back. So they're, <laughs> they're leaving, they but haven't not done. Yeah. They haven't left for good yet. Huh. So we might just have to keep, keep an eye on it. But anyway, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a baby squirrel like in the wild. Well, they hide. I mean, the babies are really tiny. Like I saw pictures yeah. from the gals yesterday. That is adorable. They're, they're tiny little, they're actually kind of like, you know, pink hairless kind of uh, ugly at oh, first, okay. but I'm sure once they get fur and they start opening their eyes, they're freaking adorable. So that's what you saw was like the pink hairless, ugly versions on. Yeah. On the, um, peeking over pictures and videos that, that these, Oh, what about peeking gals. over? They oh have... no, they were older. Yeah. They okay. were cute, like fuzzy. I just, bet. They looked young, you know, yeah. they're not like a normal size squirrel and they just looked young and they just looked really curious and oh, scared. <laughs> terrified. What is that thing? What's that tall a thing down there? Adorable and terrified. <laughs> I know. I know. So that was my interesting day yesterday. Yeah, I just you'll have to, to keep us story. updated on that. The squirrel yeah. situation. The, the little, um, Karin calls them squoo mates. Squoo. 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 Squoo squoo is her well squirrel if you say it in a baby voice is squoo uh, I, I know squoo mate that was some like medical term <laughs> <laughs> like that's what they call the nest that they make to have babies in is the squoo or squoo? something yeah i got gotcha. you it could be all right i mean you could call it that i put a anyway. little too much thought into that <laughs> <laughs> nope it's just cute animal critter talk it's that's adorable. all it is yeah. How are oh, you? Um, good. Yeah, good. It's been um, it's been a busy week so far. Um, busy weekend. Busy, really busy last week, but um, all good stuff. Just lots going on with mm -hmm. kids and families and stuff. But all good. Work's been busy, but good. Yeah. So. Do you ever do you find that your work picks up in the spring? I honestly have not found any consistent time of year. For really, me. never. It's, and you think there would be like, I've had so many Januaries and Februaries have just been crap and you think they'd be great months as a trainer, you know, and then like random, like, okay, October, I got like seven new clients. Like what? Like what is happening? I know. You know just like, and then the next year it'll be like, you know, October will be crap and January's crap. And then like March is, you know, and August, it's, I, I don't, I haven't found any rhyme or reason. I know a lot of people say they do, and I don't know if it's just their businesses, but it's, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> huh? That's interesting uh, because mine, my business really slowed down in October, November, December last year. Mm -hmm. And then it was like partway through January all of a sudden, I mean, I also work with a lot of athletes. And so I mm -hmm. think in January is when a lot of athletes are really looking at sure. their running season, their, you know, triathlon season, cycling mm -hmm. season starts kicking up and, mm -hmm. and that's when they decide like, Hey, I need some nutrition help. So yeah. 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of weird, but yeah, but it's been a good month. So yeah. Awesome. We are nearing the one year mark. We are. Yeah. This is episode 50 that we're recording right now. And we are kind of tripping a little Mm -hmm. bit about that because that's, it's pretty freaking cool. I know it is a couple more weeks and we will have been doing this for a whole year an episode every week for a year like i not to pat ourselves on the back but to pat ourselves on the back yeah high five buddy yeah it's taken some (laughs) real dedication to do this every week for a year and we've had to double up several weeks and yeah but it's just it's really cool that we're coming up on episode 52 i'm real excited about it we don't know what we're doing yet but i'm just excited to do whatever it is yeah (laughs) yeah so i wanted to share this comment that i got because we do get quite a bit of feedback from our listeners. And, you know, I'm sure it's this way with you, Michael, that like a text or, you know, something just kind of a a comment on a, an Instagram post or something like that. And this was a message from our good friend, Sean Watson, who is our listener up in Coeur d'Alene. And he said, I listen to your podcast all the time. It has helped to not only change my view on food, but also working out gave me a thumbs up emoji, keep up the hard work. And he said, I can only imagine how much extra work that is for you guys, (laughs) (laughs) which I appreciated two parts of that. First of all, the fact that he's a listener because he's, he's a very good friend of, um, mine and Matt's like for, I mean, he and Matt have been friends for decades, I think. Mm. And, um, to hear that our good friends listen to this is actually a little more of an endorsement for me than, than you might think, because, you know, our good friends don't have to, I mean, we're going to be friends with them, whether they listen to our podcast or not. And you might think like, well, of course your friends would support you, but I have a lot of really close friends and family members that don't listen. Mm -hmm. Totally cool. That's fine. I certainly don't expect everybody to, to love our material and to listen to us every week, but I really enjoy hearing those people that won't bullshit you mm-hmm. and come back and say, Hey, I'm listening to what you guys are putting out there. And it's really valuable right. to me. And yeah. thank you because yep. it's helping. Yeah. Um, That's and then awesome. to acknowledge that, yeah, it's, it's work. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite a bit of work. So yeah. High five on the one year mark coming up. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I agree. I think most of my friends and family don't listen, <laughs> but I always, I always feel like I, you know, I can't remember where I heard this. It was a long, long time ago. And it was said better than this, but it was some of the effect of like, there's like a curse of proximity. And like, when you're close to people, like they just can't be as smart as they are to you. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to be, your friend's not going to make a post that's going to blow your mind, but someone you don't know could say the same thing. And you're going to be like, oh my God, this is life-changing. That's interesting. I bet you know? that's, yeah, And I think there's something thing. to that. And I think it's because my friends and family know I'm also just an idiot, you know, who like likes to laugh at fart jokes and like, they know me in that way <laughs> and how juvenile I am, you know, and stuff. And, and just they're, they know me so much better that I think it's hard to have influence when you know people that closely, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it too. So when that does happen, it's like, oh, okay. Maybe we're doing something really good here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. And so, um, I love hearing that feedback. And so anybody out there, if you have a comment or, um, feedback for us, positive or constructive, Mm -hmm. please reach out to us and send us an email comment on an Instagram post. We'd love to hear from you and your ideas like for podcast topics, please talk about or or ideas for guests or just anything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So today is kind of unique because I will be inter- uh, interviewing Michael. Yeah. We have a special guest and it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Michael didn't have to do wah, wah. any preparation work for this podcast. I had so, some coffee. I stretched, you know, okay. You're all ready. <laughs> yeah. Got your mind. Sure. As Did pretty as it ever is. Exercises. Oh, oh, oh. Me, me, yeah. me, 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 me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to interview Michael because we've talked about this a few times before on the podcast and kind of mentioned it in passing, but I'm not sure that our listeners all know that you are diabetic. Mm-hmm. And I first of all, I just want to say that I think it's really impressive that all of our conversations on nutrition and food 
and lifestyle approaches and different things, you have this really wonderful perspective of, you know, yes, you have your story, but not everything ties back to, you know, seeing it through, through this one lens, like you have such a gift of seeing things from different perspectives of different people. And so I think this is, this is our opportunity to hear how you see that through your lens and what this Mm -hmm. has been for you. And to hopefully share with our listeners a little bit about your journey and to maybe appreciate, wow, you know, what a cool perspective you have on food and fitness and health and diet and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, despite your, your diagnosis and living with diabetes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Um, and I, I try to have that perspective. It probably really helps that I do what I do because I have to talk to people all the time with different perspectives and different conditions or limitations or strengths or whatever. So I, I feel like that probably really lends itself to me being able to see that more openly, but still, I, I thank you. I appreciate that. I'll take the yeah. compliment. Absolutely. <laughs> so going along that thread of you doing what you do in fitness and health and nutrition and working with people in that realm, I know that you started out in social work, Mm -hmm. but maybe just tell us the story of how you got interested in fitness and and diet and health and kind of how that, how that evolved, because I think that dovetails nicely into, it's sort of ironic that you ended up with a diagnosis that, (laughs) you know, directly relates to your chosen path. So maybe tell us a little bit about how you came here. So, yeah, so I graduated from Northwest Nazarene University in Nampa, Idaho with a bachelor's in social work and, um, immediately worked in the mental health field, um, in the St. Al Psychiatric Center there in Boise. And then down here in Houston, it was called the Miniger Clinic, which is one of the more well-known uh, mental health hospitals in the country, uh, which is really cool to work there. Um, I worked with adolescents um, at the Menninger Clinic, which I loved, and then moved back to Boise um, and worked for a little bit at St. Al Psych again. But I just, I was kind of burnt out with that at that point. Like I'm, I don't separate things well, and I would take every buddy's burdens home. And I was just kind of fried. And I was like, I can't do this any longer. And so I, I moved back to Oregon and was living with my parents at the time. Um, and let's see how this go. So I had a job that didn't work out and I was like 28, 27, 28, living mm-hmm. with my parents, didn't have a job, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do in Ontario, (laughs) Oregon, which were, let's be honest, not a lot of opportunities there. Sure. And I had, I had over the last year and a half, I'd been married before and been divorced somewhat recently to that. And coming out of that I didn't know that about you. Really? I didn't. Oh, no. We'll edit this out. (laughs) (laughs) And then we'll just cut to you nodding knowingly like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, I know that we've talked all about this. You know, I was married before. I didn't know oh, well, I was married before. Yeah. Anyway, so okay. coming out of that, I'll just gloss over that coming out of that. I, I was living here in Houston at the time and didn't have anybody. So was living in a new um, apartment complex and working out was just kind of like something to take up some time. Right. And so I had, you know, I had, I had worked out before, but never like regularly in any way very sporadically, like a month here. And then three years later, a month there, like not very much at all. Okay. Um, and so that became just kind of a thing like to do and to take up some time and to help me kind of cope with stress and that kind of stuff. Anyway. So I moved back up to Ontario, Oregon, um, was still kind of getting into working out and reading like, you know, muscle and fitness magazine, all the bodybuilder magazines. And I just really got into just very interested in not in bodybuilding, but just in this whole fitness side of things. And I really saw an opportunity, you know, what I think attracted me the most to social work was a chance to to help. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm innately a helper. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I like to help people. I like to hopefully leave people feeling better than, you know, when, before we interacted or whatever, and, mm-hmm. but I just didn't want to do it in that social work way anymore. I didn't want to go on and get my license or my master's zero interest. And so I kind of saw this, Hmm, you know, maybe I could help people this way, you know, as a trainer. 
And so let's see, I think it was January of 2008. I had just joined a gym there in Ontario and I talked to the owners like, Hey, I'm thinking about maybe like being a personal trainer. Would you guys let me train here? I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Whatever. Do it. So I had that in my back pocket, had this job, it fell apart. And somewhere around like July, August of that year was when I was living with my parents, no job. Just like, okay, what am I doing here? And so I thought, (laughs) you know what, I'll give this a shot. And so I, you know, I got certified and just started going, okay, you know, this is, I guess, going to be my, my job for right now. And let's see if I can make this work. And I've been doing it ever since. Wow. And then, so I think our uh, trajectories are kind of similar in that Mm -hmm. we both got interested in exercise and fitness and that, you know, physiology and, Mm -hmm. and the physical fitness part of things. And then nutrition sort of emerged out of that, right? Your interest in nutrition, which is how you got into like precision nutrition certification. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I went through, you know, several years of personal training, probably giving advice I shouldn't have been giving, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just because that's what you do as a trainer. And that's kind of the standard. And You're kind of expected to, to know everything. Yeah. It's really odd it's that expectation that, that clients and just the mm-hmm. industry has. And being a personal trainer is kind of like the wild West. Like there's, there's no <laughs> governing body. There's no yeah. nothing. There's no like, um, you know, there's no like one certification process. There's a million of them. You could probably be certified as a trainer this afternoon if you wanted. And who's to say that that's, bad or worse. You know what I mean? Like I have a really respected certification, but I also know people who have it that are terrible trainers. You know, yeah. I have, I know people that have not gone through any certification and would be way better than a lot of the people I know doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, it's just kind of a weird thing, but I chalk it up to just ignorance as a younger trainer. Um, and as I went along through the years, I, I gave less and less specific nutrition advice and more broad terms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I realized, you know, I, I don't feel like I should be doing that at this point. Um, and I think as I've gone along, even getting certified through Precision Nutrition, which was, was that three years ago, I think, something like that. Um, I feel like my advice gets less specific and more general mm-hmm. and more yeah. um, in terms of like, let's talk about you know, your relationships with foods and that, you know, I'm not diagnosing anything. I refuse to write a meal plan. I tell people like, if you want a meal plan, you're in the wrong place. Right. One, I'm not allowed to legally as a trainer, mm-hmm. right? That's not my jam Two, I don't have the, the knowledge to do that. So I think it's irresponsible, but mm-hmm. I can help you eat more vegetables and move more and look at your relationship right. with food and mindfulness and emotional eating. And so that's more my approach. It's still in that nutritional world, but it's gotten less and less around from like any kind of details. So yeah. anyway, so I, you know, I was doing that and I just, I started following precision nutrition. I think when they started, cause I knew of Dr. John Berardi, who was the co-founder of it um, really early on in my career as a trainer. And I just thought they were doing wonderful things. And I reached the point where, you know, I was like, you know, I really feel like this would be a really good um, weapon in my arsenal you know, as a trainer to have a better understanding of nutrition, to learn how to coach people better as a trainer and nutritionally, you know, just um, sort of lifestyle wise, that kind of stuff. And so um, I can't remember how long that that certification took me, but um, yeah, it's, I think it's coming up two and a half years since mm-hmm. I got certified with them, something like that. So at this point, you are still kind of operating from this place of I mean, it sounds like physical fitness and just, you know, general health was, uh, impactful, was impactful Mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. And so for you personally, this was like an avenue of, oh, I can, you know, professionally help people too. Like I have the skills from social work. I mean, man, you have incredible skills on behavior change and, you know, working with people and counseling skills. Yeah. Listening. Yeah. So then I'm curious how the, maybe walk us through the, how you applied these things to yourself and maybe how that, how the diagnosis of diabetes unfolded for you, because I'm really curious to hear what kinds of things you were doing for your own health and how this diagnosis, which I can only imagine was probably like a huge bombshell for you because you're like, what the 
hell. <laughs> like I'm a, you know, I'm a healthy person. Like what is happening to me? So maybe walk us through that next. So yeah. Next so area. this would be, let me get my ears right real quick. I think it would be like in the next summer, early fall of 2018. Um, I just started. So, I mean, you know, I was a trainer. Um, I may have been in the process of getting certified, certified with persistent nutrition at that point. It was somewhere around there. Um, so, you know, the thing for me is I, I think a lot of trainers get into training because like they love fitness and they love being in the gym. And that was never me. I was never like a gym rat. Um, even as a trainer, it wasn't a place that I just like, I mean, I liked being there, but it wasn't, I didn't like, you know, I was never a workout five or six times a week, you know, anything like that. Mm -hmm. I just saw the benefits of it physically, you know, um, just health wise and knew the, the benefits of, of being a stronger person and saw how, you know, pushing in the gym made me a stronger person emotionally and mentally too. And how that impacted my clients' lives outside the gym. So it was always more of a, it wasn't a passion about that specifically. It was the means for, uh, I chose to help people, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it was something I loved. I really enjoyed it, you know, but it wasn't like, I'm a gym rat kind of guy. So it didn't come from that. But so I was at a place where, you know, I'm working out regularly, eating fairly well, you know, a, a pretty healthy person. Um, and that summer of 2018, I just started like, there were weird things that I started noticing. Like I would get, you know, really thirsty, like just like this unquenchable thirst, or I would, you know, all of a sudden I was like having to like pee a couple times a night. I'm like, what is going on? You know, like, why am I peeing? I'm not that old. You know, why am I peeing so much? Um, I'd get, you know, like some fatigue sometimes started getting these muscle cramps and they were just kind of random and sporadic. And then they just kind of kept going and kept going you know, like everything was getting more often, a little more severe. And so and you can tie this to like a workout or something. Cause sometimes I have to, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll be like dumping water after a really long ride no. or something and get yeah. up. It'd be like the middle of the night. Like yeah. I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning and like drink like half a gallon of water. Like I could not get quenched literally, Wow. you know, and I'm just like, what the hell is going on? This is weird. Mm -hmm. And of course, being the idiot I am, I'm not going to the doctor. And Kathleen's like, go to the freaking doctor, dumbass. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Something's wrong. So you're getting the signals. Yeah. Right, your body literally is like, hello. Months later. Okay. All wow. this is progressing. It got to the point where I was, I was awake in the night every 20 to 30 minutes peeing, like peeing a wow. lot. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even have this much water in me, you know, like thirsty all the time. I would drive to Boise from Ontario, which is an hour away tops, like yeah. 50, 55 minutes for people who don't know, I'd have to stop and pee three times. And like this wow. urgency, like I'm, I can't control this. I'm going to wet my pants. Like it there's, you can't stop this. And so you know, and I was getting really bad cramps in the night. And so I finally went to the doctor and I thought, is it my prostate? You know, like, is sure going on with that or what? And so they, they checked for that, which was super fun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Um, and they took my <laughs> blood sugar, you know, took some blood, did a few different things. And this was, I want to say like November, December ish, I think of 2018, I might be off, but it was towards the end of the year. And, um, my doctor called me back. She's a good friend of mine up in Ontario. Um, she called me back and she was like, Hey, uh, so you have diabetes. And I was like, wow. No, I don't like, that's a dumb thing to say. <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> Is it April like, 1st? Like yeah. what's the deal? Right. Um, and she was like, yeah, it's without question. You, you have diabetes. So wow. for people that don't know, um, your, you know, your blood sugar is kind of like a in the moment marker of kind of how well your body is processing glucose and getting out of your bloodstream and into your cells for fuel and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So a healthy range, like 130 is kind of the high end. If you're like mm -hmm. above 200 at any point, you're a diabetic. When I went in, mine mm -hmm. was like 650. It was like off your blood sugar was, yeah, it was 650. No shit. Yeah. Like, whoa, crazy high. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure if I worked in the diabetes realm, I would probably have seen a blood sugar like that a time or two, but I don't high. think I have ever seen a lab value that yeah. out of control. It's, it's way up there. 
And then they all, we also do something called um, A1C, which is, you know, I get that done every three months or so. And that's just to see, that's like a longer picture of sort of how your body's processing. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives you, it gives an idea of where your blood sugar levels have been. Um, and so they did that as well. And if you go like Google, like A1C charts, like they usually top out around 12. Like this is like, holy yeah. shit, this is way up yeah. there. Mine was 13.1. Oh boy. Yeah. My doc was like, this is like crazy high. Like I don't even, we don't even need to question it. Like you're 110% diabetic. And she's like, I need you to come back down to the office. You know, let me to get you started on some insulin, um, get you some medication. Like we need to get you down into a range Wow! right away because staying up there for very long, which I probably had been for months, it does well, a lot of damage to your body. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that to me is the, one of the crazy things about this you're, and I'm, we'll, we'll get a little more into your diagnosis and how they explained it, but yours is adult onset, which most type one diabetes diagnoses happen in childhood. Mm-hmm. So I think I was reading before we started here that 0.5% of adult yeah. onset diagnosis, diabetes cases are type one and That's like, real rare. yeah, it's very rare. So, um, I find it fascinating that you, you had these symptoms starting. And I mean, thank goodness you finally went and, I mean, it was months and not years (laughs) yeah, of going through this. Did you feel like shit when your blood sugar was that high? Because that can be no, like you didn't, I mean, I was was just the, it was just peeing all the time. Cause I, cause I literally like, I mean, if I went 40 minutes in the night without waking up to pee and I would pee for like two minutes, like it was by the time I was done, I was like, a lot. I'm I'm wide awake. I've been here a while. (laughs) You can only do like the close your eyes and stay half asleep for so long before you're like, without making a mess. And then cat would get on your ass or something else. (laughs) Like, come on now. (laughs) So what I found out is the reason that happens is when your blood sugar reaches a certain level, your body tries to flush it out. So it's mm-hmm. trying to get rid of fluids. Like, dude, we've got to get rid of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's why you pee more frequently is to, to flush it out. And that gets you dehydrated pretty easily. So that's why you're so thirsty. Yeah. And it's just sort of this ugly cycle and think of, of all the that body work trying on to handle your- it. Yeah. Think of all that work on your kidneys and Mm. your, your system, like your body is Mm. literally just working and filtering and working and filtering. Yeah. That's why people, it's why people have such trouble with kidney Mm -hmm. function with, Mm -hmm. with uncontrolled diabetes. Yeah. So I got that call and I remember I was sitting on, like, we had like these steps down to like a little playroom and then head out the back door to the, what's it called? Driveway. Um, and I sat down on the steps and just bawled. I just started bawling because I, I didn't know much about diabetes. What do I know about diabetes? Oh, it kills yeah. people. People go blind and they lose their feet. That's what I know about diabetes. Oh, and so just terrified, right? Like what is going on and how is this possible? And, and at that point I didn't know it was type one, you know, I just had that conversation. And so I'm thinking it must be type two. And I'm going like, how, I don't understand this, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I eat pretty well. I have a, you know, a, my weights in a range that doesn't indicate that that's going to be any kind of issue, you know, just all these things. And I just didn't really understand it at all. So, um, I was real scared to be honest, because I was like, mm-hmm. am I going to lose my feet? Like, am I, you know, not going to be able to see my grandkids? Cause I'm blind from this. Like, wow. I don't know what to expect. And you know, here. the fact that your, your recollection of that moment is so vivid. Like you mm-hmm. can remember exactly like, Oh, the steps down, you know, mm-hmm. to the playroom or whatever. I think anybody who's been through something similar when they get life altering news, like, you know, that your life before that moment is different than how your life is going to be after that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Everything different because Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's a chronic disease. Like it, it's never going to go away. Mm -hmm. It's either going to be managed or get worse. Like those are the options. Right. Right. And you know, it's not the, wisest thing to do, but you get something like that. You start reading about it. And one of the first things you read is, oh, this is the number seven killer. Oh God, you go to Google, Google doctor. And you're like like, top 10 of of ways to die. You know, like it just kills a bunch of people. So it's just like, I was just like, holy shit. Like this is terrifying, you know? So I went back down to my doc. Um, 
like right away. And she, you know, like got me some insulin pins and some medication and was walking me through it. And I remember the first time, like trying to give myself insulin with that needle. I'm like, Oh, oh I don't want to do this. <laughs> Stabbing myself Jeez. is not something that comes naturally. Um, but <laughs> oh also gosh. just being like, so overwhelmed, you know, like how I don't, I can't process this, you know? Um, and so we walked through, like, she said, you know, you're, you're type one for sure. Um, and she said, what can happen is you can sort of have this latent autoimmune thing in your body that is triggered with like real stress, trauma, Mm -hmm. something like that. And so our guess is, so when Kat had Sophie, um, if you're pregnant or going to have kids, maybe just skip this part because I don't want to freak anybody out. But um, she like was on death's door afterwards. She lost, she yeah. hemorrhaged, lost three liters of blood. I'm holding Sophie as a newborn thinking like, how do I raise two kids as a single parent? And it was just, it was really traumatic, incredibly stressful. And the months after were incredibly stressful because her recovery was very long, mm. you know? And so it was just this really stressful time. And so our guess is that that event just triggered this autoimmune thing. And my pancreas decided to stop working, you know, I shut down. Yeah. So because I still had some insulin on board when I was first diagnosed. So it was just shutting down. Yeah. Wow. We don't know for I've sure, heard, but that's our guess. I've heard stories of that kind of, you know, a traumatic incident or, or people getting, um, really ill with, mm-hmm. a you know, a virus or bacteria or something. And it sort of kick something up in their, you know, for an autoimmune response. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they develop new allergies or intolerances or like weird things, um, that come up. So that's really interesting. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you is if there was possibly a genetic component that was, you Mm -hmm. know, discovered, or if there was an explanation or a hypothesis, at least how that happened. That's our best guess. I mean, I guess it could have wow. been anything else. Maybe my pancreas just sucked and it's been slowly dying my whole life. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe but, it's just like TikTok, buddy, TikTok. Right? <laughs> yeah, it may have been. I'm retiring soon. <laughs> but that's our best guess is that, wow. is that that was probably it. But who knows? Did you feel as, I mean, yes, it was scary and wow. All of a sudden you have these visions of the things that could happen to you mm-hmm. because this is what you know to be Mm -hmm. true of diabetes. Did you feel any stigma or like you had done something wrong or, I mean, I'm just thinking Mm -hmm. being in the fitness and health industry, you know, I think you and I, you know, we live it. We not just, not only do we want to help people improve their lives and their physical health and their, you know, we do our best to live it. And I'm just curious if there was any of that swirling around where you're like, Oh my God, you know, all of a sudden I get this diagnosis, Mm -hmm. like what the hell? Yeah. I was embarrassed about Mm -hmm. it. I felt embarrassed about it. Um, so this was a real moment for me where I became very aware of some biases that I didn't realize I had. Right. Because I became very aware of the fact, like I'm type one, but what if people think I'm type two and my, my assumptions about someone who has type two diabetes became very clear. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm worried about this thing because of how I view it. And what if someone sees me the way I see them? Oh, wow. That's a profound, yeah. yeah, It was a real, I mean, it took me a little bit to get there, of course, but it was a real eye-opening thing for me of, okay, like I need to really check my biases and am I, you know, viewing people, making assumptions about people with whatever conditions, you know, or whatever histories or whatever that are really unfair. Um, so yeah, it was, I was embarrassed and I, I, I wasn't really embarrassed of the disease. I, I felt weak, right? Like I mm-hmm. felt like I have this weakness now and there's, I'm no longer in control. Something else is in control and I just have to manage that thing, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I don't get to like close the gates on the monster in the cave. That doesn't happen. I just got to constantly try to keep it in there. Right. Because there's no, just closing the gate and walking away. Um, and so I felt that felt like a weakness to me. Like my body had kind of like turned against me to be honest. Oh yeah. And it took me a while before I was really comfortable telling people because I felt 
I guess a shame is probably the best word. It seems like a strong word, but I had a real strange negative reaction to getting that news. Mm. And I, I felt very, um, I was very angry. I felt, uh, I felt very embarrassed about it and I felt kind of shameful about it for some reason. I remember when you reached out to me after your diagnosis, and I don't know how long it was since you were diagnosed, but you reached out looking for kind of a community of diabetic athletes, you know, especially type one. And, um, and I remember assuming it was for a client. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had kind of been like, well, if your client is this, and if your client is that, and I had kind of made this assumption and then you were like, actually it's for me. And I was like floored, not just number one, because I know that you take care of your health and and that you live, you know, our philosophies mesh at the same time. I had at that point, I had never heard of anyone diagnosed with adult onset type one diabetes, unless they had like some severe medical, you know, some happening. Um, yeah. So it was, it was crazy. And I can only imagine that seeking out a community, like some kind of a support community, how quickly did you, or I guess maybe how did that shift happen where you came from this place of feeling embarrassed and shameful and not wanting to talk about it. And, and maybe even this might relate to the stages of grief too, Mm -hmm. right? Because people like get in denial and then they get pissed and all this other stuff. How did that go for you? And how did you start reaching out to like connecting with other communities that, you know, have experienced this? So as far as the stages go, I I honestly just kind of skipped denial because I, I just felt scared. Like I got to get this under control. I don't, when there's have, lab values there yeah, <laughs> that are like, yeah, the charts we make don't go that high. You know, <laughs> it was, it was very clear. It's like, okay, you got to get it together and you got to manage this. And I just kind of went straight to angry <laughs> about it Sure, because I didn't understand it. I didn't, it just didn't make any sense to me. And granted at that point, I still had a, a huge lack of understanding about the disease and how, you know, just all I knew was, sort of just these things I'd picked up through life. And, you know, you hear about someone's uncle who, yeah, they, why don't they have a leg because they have diabetes, you know, why are they, and and that's kind of what I knew. So I was still operating from that place too. So I, I really searched out like on Instagram, like some type one communities and that kind of stuff. And it was, it was a double-edged sword there because I really found a lot of people who were living very boldly and openly, uh, uh, you know, telling the world about their type one and helping other people to manage it and that kind of stuff. So that really helped me go like, okay, I can, this can be a thing that I can adopt and still live very healthy life. Like I'm seeing these people who are doing all kinds of wonderful things as type one diabetics. But I also saw in those type one communities, there were just a lot of people being assholes about type two diabetics. Like Mm. it was, I need to make it very, y'all need to know I'm not one of those type twos. I'm not Mm. that. Don't Mm. you dare call me that. Then there was this real, like, there was a lot of judgment that I, that's when I recognized like, oh, okay, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And I don't want to be a part of this, you know? Um, So I I don't really do much in those communities anymore because of that. So I just, I kind of, sounds bad, like I got what I needed and kind of left, you know? Um, Because for me, it was like, I get what they're doing, but I don't like, type being a diabetic is it's a part of who I am, but it doesn't define me. And I don't want to run in circles where it's like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm type one, you know, Betty, I'm the type one coach. I'm type one, this, I mean, so many of the like Instagram handles is type one, type one, type one. And it's like, this doesn't define me. It's something I have now. And, but I'm a bunch of other things. I'm still, you know, Michael Gray, the, the trainer and Michael Gray, the nutrition coach. And I'm these other things that type being a type one diabetic doesn't impact Mm. or influence, you know, I can use that now to relate to people and have a different angle, you know, with people that need it, but I'm still the same person. And so it was good for me, I think, to get in those circles because it, it really allowed me to go, okay, it's, it's okay to have this and it's okay for people to know about this and I can be a healthy person, but I also don't want to do it the way they're doing yeah. it, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? How you aren't aware of those mm-hmm. 
biases or that viewpoint that you might have, or, you know, your thoughts on those things until you're actually in the other person's shoes. Like you're living it now and you have just a very different perspective and And it almost internalizes. Yeah. Yeah. Like these things that you've been kind of observing from the outside and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you're like, Whoa, that speaks to me. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is, you know, I, I have friends who've been type two diabetics for a long time and I've never thought negatively about them. I think just sort of that in general, you know, when it came down to a specific person, I never felt that way, but sort of the overarching umbrella of things, I guess I had these real negative beliefs and assumptions that I didn't realize until I, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. became a diabetic myself. And I was like, Ooh, shoot. Yeah. That's kind of ugly, so, Michael. <laughs> yeah, totally. And has this changed how you work with clients? Um, how you approach those kinds of things? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, it's, I think there's, I've worked with more diabetics than I probably would have normally because there's an understanding, you know, like, oh, he's going to get what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it also, you know, it just, I feel like being empathetic is something I've always done fairly well. I've always been an empathetic person pretty naturally, but it's certainly, um, I think increased that and made me a more empathetic person. Um, I think it's, it's helped me really check a lot of my assumptions and judgments about things just across the board. Um, and it's, it was a real turning point for me just personally of just kind of this moving into a way of thinking, like in terms of, we don't know what's going on with anybody, you know, like. I think we're really good at assuming whether, you know, someone's an, a jerk to us or someone lives this way or eats this way. We make assumptions to, to make sense of what's happening. And I think this was a, a catalyst for me to begin to kind of deconstruct a lot of that and just mm-hmm. look at people more openly. And, um, or when I do make those assumptions or judgments to kind of check myself, you know, what? I don't know. I can say, I think it's because of this, but I really have no idea. And so I feel like it's helped yeah. me approach my clients more openly, you know, um, versus coming in with maybe some things already decided in my head. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us how this has changed your, your eating, your daily habits Has it, I mean, I can only imagine it's changed some, some of your, um, yeah. you know, patterns with eating and food, but maybe tell us a little bit about this now. Yeah. So when I was first diagnosed, like I would not, I wouldn't eat a carb, like any kind of bread or oatmeal. I mean, I'd eat vegetables, uh, fruit some, cause I just didn't know how it was going to impact me. I didn't understand how my body was going to respond. And, you know, that's one thing when you're diabetic, you know, especially type one and insulin dependent, you got to figure out your insulin dose to carb ratio, right? Like, cause you got to yeah. dose your insulin appropriate to how many carbs you're going to get. And that can be a whole different thing. Cause you got carbs with fiber and stuff. Those process differently. You got really sugary carbs. So sit quicker. And, and so it was just this real unfun learning curve of just like, you know, eating and taking my blood sugar. And what did that do? And I did this much insulin. And what did that do? And you know, that kind of stuff. So for a while, I just, I didn't really eat anything. And not too long because it sucked, you know, um, and I, I like carbs. So, (laughs) um, so it, it, I definitely pulled back, um, real severely at first and then kind of like, well, I would probably do a little bit of the feast or famine kind of thing. You know, I do it for a Mm. while and it would be like, screw it, this sucks. And okay, I should probably go back to that. Cause until I really begin to understand how my body could handle carbs, Um, I was also metformin and an oral medication, um, which helped gives you some leeway with how many carbs you can eat and taking Mm -hmm. a little bit less insulin. So, you know, it just took a while. It was pretty bumpy for a bit. Um, it still can be bumpy to be honest. There's sometimes I take my blood sugar. I'm like, what the hell? Like, yeah. Why is it 300? Like, this doesn't make any sense, you know? Uh And, and maybe I'm missing something, but I feel like there's so much that goes into that. Like, you know, how, how well I've slept, stress levels. It just feels like mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes into that. Or there's times where it's just like, oh, here we go. I'm tanking. It's dropping. I don't yeah. know why right now. I don't understand. 
you know? Um, so it's still bumpy to a degree, but it's, it's definitely leveled out a lot, but you know, over time I begin to introduce carbs, um, pretty normally again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I go through periods, you know, it's, there's something they call, what's it like diabetic fatigue or something. Uh-huh. Um, where it's just, the shit gets old. It's like every meal I trying yeah. to figure out how many carbs you're eating and where's my blood sugar now? And how much insulin do I need to take? How active am I going to, am I going to be today? Cause that's mm-hmm. going to impact it too. You know, you take insulin to match everything you eat and then you go be active. Well, then you're going to tank cause you need some carbs to fuel what you're going to do. You need some blood sugar, yeah. you know, it's just kind of a, a disaster a lot of times and it just gets really old. And so there have been some periods, honestly, where I haven't managed it near as well as I should have, cause I'm just tired of it. You know, I'm tired of taking my blood sugar five, six times a day. I'm tired of taking insulin, you know, multiple times a day and it just gets old. And then I, after a while you go, okay, listen, man, like this is your life. You got to get it back together, you know? Um, But so how I eat now is it's, it's not too terribly different than what it was before. I'm, I'm more conscious about like some things, you know, Um, like I weigh, carbs a lot more, not like more emotionally, like, okay, do I really want this? You know, is this something I really want to take insulin for where before I may not, you know, um, like there's just some things I just, I really just don't ever eat more scrutiny on what you're going to have and and what does this do for me? You know, exactly. Um, yeah. So there's a lot more being conscious in that way. Um, I'll also go through through some periods where I just want to rely on insulin less. So I'll eat Mm. lower carb for a while, just because I, I just want to not be so tied to that. Yeah. I want to feel not so dependent on it. Um, and I don't know if there's any kind of tolerance built up to insulin taking it, you know, um, through injection or not, Mm -hmm. but I worry about that too. It's like, okay, I want to stay as sensitive as I can to it. So that yeah. I don't have to start taking where I would normally have to take, you know, a couple of units. Now I'm taking three or four or five and I just don't want to get in that place. So I, I just kind of check myself every now and then with that as well. But. Do you change the, the types of carbs? Did you adjust like, oh, I, I need to have more fiber rich carbs, or I, I need, you know, a little bit slower mm-hmm. acting carbohydrates, mm-hmm. or if I'm going to have this carb, I need to make sure that I have some protein and fat and kind of the context of a meal with it. Any of that yeah. going on? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely eat like less bread stuff, a whole bunch, you know, I like sandwiches and that kind of stuff. I almost never eat them anymore. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I will often, you know, opt for something that, that has, um, a lot lower carb value. And I like to, to try and prioritize things that are going to metabolize slower. So I don't have that yeah. spike in my blood sugar. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I love cereal, you know, I'll still eat cereal, yeah. crush a bowl of Captain <laughs> Crunch or Cocoa Puffs cause I love it, you know? Um, but I also like, you know, my breakfast, I, I try to keep pretty, pretty simple, you know? Um, I, I, I mean, you know, we make waffles for the girls sometimes or pancakes. I usually don't have mm-hmm. any pancakes. Um, you know, I'll, I'll eat way less waffles. And it's like, I got to make sure I have protein with this just to kind of help stabilize stuff. And, you know, um, so it, it definitely has changed the way I eat, you know, in those terms, but I also, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to hate the way I eat and I'm not going to deny myself things that I enjoy either because mm-hmm. it's just not worth it to me, you know? What kind of, I mean, this, this sort of wraps up nicely. What I was going to ask you about any advice or, um, I don't know, encouragement for people who have been through any, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about diabetes and your specific instance, but I have to believe that just about anybody who's listening to this has been through some kind of life altering, you know, change Mm -hmm. or discovery or diagnosis or something where it does feel like, overwhelming. This is forever. Mm -hmm. I never get a break from this ever again. You know, what kind of perspective or encouragement do you have? Um, you know, I think so. like, if anyone's in the middle of that sort of like, it's the bombs just gone off, you know, um, I think just know that this is probably the worst part of it. 
you know, yeah. like, like looking back over the last three years or whatever. Um, I think the hardest part was those first few months where I just didn't understand it. I didn't really know what was going on. I was just mad about it. Um, like there's, there's a, another side to that. There's acceptance and there's knowledge and there's, um, there's a way to feel like you have at least some sort of handle on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think one of the biggest things that's been helpful to me that, that really helps me sort of move through this is to allow myself to still, I don't know if grieve is the right word, but like, just, just have those bad days that are bad days and maybe mm-hmm. not even like blood sugar wise, but just those days or the times where it's just like, I'm tired. You know, I'm just, yeah. I'm worn out from managing this thing because really it is like that. There's the monster in the cave and you're the only thing keeping it back. Then it's just constant. It's constant work. It's constant awareness. It's constant calculation. And it just gets old. And I used to like feel guilty when I would have those days where it's just like, F it. Like I just, I'm not doing it today. I'm going to be mindful of it, but I'm not taking right. my blood You're sugar. You're not like on all, yeah, yeah, I'm firing just, on all cylinders. Yeah, I'm pumping the brakes because I just, I need that just mentally and emotionally and just kind of stress-wise. And I know that's not the best thing for managing my disease, but I feel like in those moments, it's the best thing for me as a whole, you know, mm-hmm. um, because then I'm able to dig in deeper and be more on top of it and that kind of stuff. And so for me, I think that's that's been one of the biggest things that's that's helped me manage this is just realize like, I'm not going to be on my A game all the time and that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to have those days where I just, I just don't want to do it. And maybe I don't manage it as well as I should, but I've, I got to do this for the rest of my life. Like there's no break, you know, there's no it going away for a little bit or remission. It just doesn't, it's just, it's only, like I said, it's either managing it or worse. Those are my Mm -hmm. options. And in I'm 40 years old. Like hopefully I got another 40 or 50 years left. And that's a long time. Yeah. I just never, ever pump the brakes and go like, okay, yeah. let me just set this aside for a minute. So that would be, I think my encouragement is just like, let yourself feel what you feel, you know, and be okay with that. You know, if you're angry, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, like you're that for a reason, you know, don't feel like you have to deny that in the name of taking a hundred percent peak care of yourself all the time, because there's, mm-hmm. I think there's some taking care of yourself and, and letting yourself breathe for a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That'd be I my mean, encouragement. That's an excellent message and very well put because I think showing, showing oneself grace is so hard to do. Really hard. Um, especially if you do have, you know, some pretty significant consequences Mm -hmm. to, if I, if I don't do this, you know, all of a sudden it kind of blows up into this like huge catastrophic thing where you're acknowledging that, yeah, I have to manage this for the Mm -hmm. long run. So I better give myself some periods of rest, a little bit of mental rest, a little bit of emotional rest. Um, and that, that will help you kind of springboard into the next day or the next week or whatever with renewed, you know, um, focus. So that's a great message. Well, and as far as I understand, and I may be wrong, so don't quote me on this or don't, I'm not a doctor giving advice, but my understanding (laughs) is that, you know, when your blood sugar is elevated a little bit, that's a dangerous thing over a long period of time, Mm -hmm. right? Like low blood sugars are dangerous in the moment. Like this is a crisis, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want you going into coma or anything, but those low blood, higher blood sugars, if they're up for a little bit and back down, that's kind of like, eh, okay, there's not really any concern there. They need to be elevated for a while. And that's when you start having like hardening of the arteries and stroke, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a little bit comfort for me. Like, okay, if I'm a little bit high for a day, I'm going to wrap it up tomorrow. I'm going to be back down. Things are going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's manageable. And that may not be the best approach, but it it's the only way I could give myself some of that reprieve. Yeah. And make it kind of livable. Yeah. 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 I think it's been a long time since I've worked specifically with diabetes, but I also recall hearing that 
like wild swings in blood sugar, Mm. constant, like wild swings are also very detrimental. And so if you're controlling it in a certain range, like you said, for the, for the most part, you're pretty consistent with like keeping it, you know, pretty controlled in in a certain range. I think that can probably be a, another helpful goal. So, and you mentioned this real quick. Um, just if there's any other diabetics out there, listen, I'd be interested to, to hear your responses. So I, like I said, I don't, when I'm high, I, unless I'm like 300, 400, that's when I start having to pee a lot. That's when it's like, Oh, I just went to the bathroom, but yeah. in that other range, I don't even know anything's going on when I get low garbage, like yeah. hot fire garlic. I feel <laughs> terrible. And it, it often wrecks my day. You know, oh, um, so I just be, yeah, it'd be interesting if there are any diabetics out there listening, like, do you feel terrible when you're high? Do you, what do you feel like when you're low? Right. How's that, yeah. What's that experience like for you? Yeah. Be interesting. Thank you so much for Thank sharing you. yeah. your story. This was fun. I, was fun. I'll interview more often. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta get you on the other side too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't I'll put know. on my interviewing hat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you know I have an interviewing hat? Give me some softballs. Give me some softballs. Make it easy. What's Um, your favorite color? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I was actually thinking about that today on my mountain bike ride. And I was like, today, my favorite color is yellow because the wildflowers were so gorgeous and and yellow. But honestly, my favorite color is green. And that's purely coincidental that my last name is green and that (laughs) my favorite color is green because it was green. Anyway. Yeah. As a parent, you you have to know your favorite colors because you get asked all the time. yeah. yeah. All yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Is What's this still the same? Is this still the same? Yeah. Has it changed in the last two days? Because mine's changed 10 times. <laughs> What's yours now? <laughs> and you're like, I love uh, it. green, I guess, yeah, red, I uh, kind of like yeah. black. I don't know. I don't care. You pick. <laughs> Tell me what my favorite color is. Yeah. Sophie <laughs> really wants mine. Daddy, is yours pink and blue and all the colors of the rainbow? Yeah. That's her thing right yeah, now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like, of yeah, course. Of course. It's all of them. <laughs> pink and blue and all the colors of the rainbow. You should really blow her mind and tell her if you mix all the colors together, you get white. Yeah. Yeah. Short circuit her. Smoke come out and sparks. It still doesn't. I still short circuit when I hear that. And I no sense. But I, I mean, I learned this in art classes in college and I was just like, when Matt and I talk about this now, I'm like, what, what the hell? Um, Because when I do that with my paint, it doesn't happen. No, I know. It turns out to be like some baby poop brown. I don't know. Like <laughs> Imagine if you like mix get all I your mix paints all together colors. and they turned white. Uh, yeah, I'd freak out every time. <laughs> uh, do you have a meaning in the mundane this week? I do. And at the risk of sounding cheesy, because um, it's not cheesy at all, it is this for me this week. Um, oh. Aaron, Aaron and I were talking about before we started recording... Um, just how much we love doing this. And I can say it's last week. I can say it's this week. I don't know. It could be both. Um, this is often something that she and I feel like, okay, you know, like we got to get it in and, and, it, and it maybe feels like an interruption if we've got a lot more going on, but every, we were just talking about this every single time we do this, when we get to, I mean, just two minutes into it, but at the end of it, it's just like, man, that was fun. I love mm-hmm. doing this. And, and, it's, I mean, I guess you could say it's a mundane thing because we do it weekly, sometimes twice a week, right? But um, it just hasn't lost any thrill for me. It hasn't lost any excitement. I always feel better after we're done doing it. I genuinely enjoy, you know, doing this with Aaron. I really enjoy just doing this. And it's, it's a highlight of all of my weeks. I don't think there's been once that it hasn't been, you know, work-wise in the top five things, awesome things that have happened. And it's just, I, I love doing this. And so that's mine. It's, it's super it's fun. Yes. Thank middle-ish. you. Yeah. I love you partner. And yeah. there were so many times when during the pandemic, you were like my only interaction, true <laughs> interaction <laughs> for the week, because I just didn't, you know, whatever was going on, I didn't have mm-hmm. client meetings or whatever. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a, a very important part of my pandemic. You're going to learn to drink there. Yeah. Buddy? I just poured you my water lessons. over myself. Need <laughs> <laughs> lessons for a lot of things. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's nice to hear. And my sentiments exactly. I, I love our conversations. Yeah, me too. Same. 
Samesies. So my samesies, my um my meaning in the mundane this week came from cleaning out some old voicemails. So when you get a new phone, it'll copy over all your stuff, right? And for some reason, mine has duplicate voicemails on there. So voicemails that are from the same person on the same date. And I know that that's a duplicate. So I'm kind of going through and I'm re-listening to some of these things like, well, I've kept them for a reason. And there's some, there's some really old voicemails on there. Like some, my mom singing me happy birthday Uh on my birthday, you know, years ago. And I came across one from 2016, I think, or 2015, where Matt had called me and left like this two and a half minute long voicemail, which is pretty (laughs) long voicemail. And it was just this very sweet, um, you know, I won't bore you with the details, but basically I was having a really, really rough day. And it was obviously on a weekend when I had a really big ride to do. And I was, you know, in the thick of some prep for a race, Mm -hmm. whether it's an Ironman or a a half or whatever, and just really feeling like I didn't want to do this anymore. And anybody who's been in, you know, training for an event like that or seasons, you know, back to back to back seasons for like Ironman training, Mm -hmm. you have those moments and they're very real. And you really question like why you're doing this. And Matt's message was just so supportive and loving and genuine. And the fact that he knows I'm out there riding for the next four hours, I'm not mm-hmm. going to get this message. You know, he called my phone and left this message and just mm-hmm. kind of, obviously for him, he needed to, you know, get these words out while mm-hmm. he's thinking them and feeling them. And it's, I know Matt's always there for me, but to hear that, Like to hear the words again and to remember that moment and what Mm -hmm. that was like, and to know that this was like five years ago or whatever it was, um, was just, it was, it was really sweet. And, you know, it's almost like finding an old love letter or something and being like, Oh yeah, you know, that person sent that to me. Um, but yeah, that was mine. It was just, uh, a really cool moment Mm -hmm. where you're not expecting to have that real, true emotional kind of burst inside Mm -hmm. of you. But then all of a sudden it's there and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm the luckiest person in the world. Like, that's awesome. It was great. I love that. That's great. Mm -hmm. I bet that felt amazing. Yep. And I sent it to him. I I texted it to him and I was like, do you remember this? And he's like, oh, what's the date on that one? Like he, he remembers, I mean, let's be honest. There were lots of moments where (laughs) I needed a pep talk in that manner. (laughs) Poor guy, you know, needs to be on the clock. Like every weekend I need that pep talk. Um, but now I have a recording so I can listen to it whenever I want. Yeah. And he's off hook. He doesn't have to do it anymore. I know exactly. He can, (laughs) you didn't didn't play it. it And we're like, remember when you used to say things like this to me? No, I did not do that at okay, all. Good. <laughs> if I, if I ever want to hear some of those sweet words again, I will not throw it in his face that way. <laughs> uh, oh. well, like, yeah, this was fun. I hope, I hope it was interesting and informative and, and helpful for people. Yeah. So thank you for being game mm-hmm. for letting Absolutely. me interview you yeah, and you. to our listeners, please send us feedback, share this podcast. Follow us on Instagram and we will catch you next week. See ya.